hello from the members of First United Methodist Church in Royce City. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you find it meaningful and relevant. You're invited to join us for worship anytime, and you can learn more about our worship options, location, and small group opportunities by visiting our website, fumcroycecity.org. Today, we hear from our pastor, Reverend Chris Everson. May God bless you as you listen to His Word proclaimed. Well, God, we ask that you just let our souls be still so that we may hear you, so that we may hear your word proclaimed, not so that we just listen for a few minutes, but God, so it spurs us to action, to be your hands and feet to the world around us. So Lord, we ask that you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So we are in week three of our series looking at the seven churches of Revelation that were located in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. If if you have missed a sermon or you haven't been here, uh, we have podcasted all of our sermons, so you can go online to our church website. There's a, a sermon page there that you can pick them up. Also, if, if you like to do podcasts and stuff, uh, you can go to like your favorite podcast app and you can look for Royce City First United Methodist Church and you can uh, download them too so you can listen to whatever you want. I love doing podcasts. I have a whole bunch that I listen to. Uh, but also uh, we record our services on Facebook Live and we're, we're trying to find ways to improve that. Uh, but we take the sermon also and we're putting it on YouTube and uh, you can look for our YouTube channel too just to give you ways that you can look and listen uh, for for stuff uh, outside of the sanctuary, uh, just to let you know that's there. But uh, I've really enjoyed the past three weeks really digging into it, and sometimes I find myself just going down many different trails, and I get to the point where I'm putting every together, everything together for a Sunday morning, I'm going, I have way too much stuff for a Sunday morning, and I just try to figure out how can I divided up, and, and the same thing happened as we got to the church in Pergamum. Pergamum. Per, I can't talk. Just even as these short little chapters, there's so much there for us to dig into. So I wanted to start out by doing this. A lot of cities have nicknames. They go by different things. There's some ways that we can kind of refer to them in a shorthanded way. So I'm going to see if you can understand or recognize some of these nicknames of famous cities. We'll go easy here at the beginning. Big D is Dallas, okay? How about Funky Town? Fort Worth. Early service did not get that. They had no idea Fort Worth was called Funky Town. I think that's more of a new thing. I know Cowtown sometimes. Uh, how about, this will be easy, the Big Apple, New York, okay? How about the Little Apple? What? Oh, yes, Katie knew that. Manhattan, Kansas, home of the Kansas State Wildcats. Thank you very much. Sorry, I had to throw that in. I'm a K-State person. Okay, moving on. Uh, the City of Angels, the Big Easy, 
New Orleans. Okay, let, we're going to go international now because it, it may be a little bit harder. Uh, the City of Love, Paris, Frenchtown. Where? No. Montreal, Canada is called Frenchtown. Uh, the Bride of the Sea. Where? No. Venice, Italy. The Bride of the Sea. And then I think my favorite one, where Satan has his throne. Pergamum. That's where we're at today. We are at Pergamon. How, how would you love to have known as your city being where Satan has his throne? That's what John said in his letter to Pergamon. He's told them that this is where Satan lives. This, this is where his throne is. Now, I'm thinking at the beginning, that's kind of a bum rap for a city to be known as the place where Satan has his throne because there are a lot of great things about Pergamum. Pergamum was uh, not necessarily on the same road as what Ephesus and, and Smyrna was, but it was one of the last three major cities that we're talking about that's kind of on the coast. It was, it was there, so it was a coastal city, I think about 15 miles away from the coast, so you could see the sea from Pergamum. There were a lot of other stuff that was happening there, too. Pergamum, uh, for good and bad, was the first place that a, a psychiatric-type hospital was, was put together. Uh, another thing about Pergamum, that's where a parchment paper really started to take off. Parchment was created there. They found a good way to use uh, calf skin to, to, to make parchment paper so people can, can write on. Uh, Pergamum was also uh, well known for the arts. They had a, a theater there that I believe held about 10,000 people. So 10,000 people at a time would come to Pergamum for for entertainment. It was also held, probably because of the parchment paper, it also held the second largest library in ancient times. So it was a huge library. All of these parchment papers were, were kept there. It was so popular and so famous. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark Antony, he gifted Cleopatra that library when they got married. So uh, that was a, a good thing going for that. It was also known for uh, the second largest Acropolis. Now, Acropolis is Greek for a high city. It was where they had all of these important buildings and, and these important people would gather there to, to talk about. If, if you're familiar with scripture, you have heard of the term Acropolis before uh, in Acts chapter 17. That's where um, where uh, Paul went and talked with uh, some of the, the learned people in Athens, and that's where we get uh, the phrase where, where Paul talks about the statue for the unknown God, and he goes and proclaims Christ by saying, this is who uh, this unknown God is all about. All of this stuff was happening in Pergamum. But being where the throne of Satan was, there's a dark side to Pergamum as well. Uh, that psychiatric hospital I talked about, it, it was basically built in honor to a Greek snake god. 
and, and that Greek snake god, they, they would count on him to, uh, to heal people, except for those who were terminally ill. They, they were turned away because they didn't want anybody dying in their hospital. So if you were really, really sick, they kept you out, but if you were kind of sick, they would let you come in. Also, emperors and, and, and leaders in the area would come to, to be healed here. They would, they would take them and lie them down in a room, and, and snakes would come and crawl over them, and that, that healing power of the snakes would, would make them well, or so, so they thought. So they had very significant snake worship there. There was also three major temples that were located in Pergamum too. One was because of the Roman Empire was, was set up for, uh, for the Roman emperor to worship him. Uh, another one was set up for uh, Athena, the goddess Athena, to worship her. And then there was the temple of Zeus. And this place was huge. And this, this temple uh, was busy night and day. They said there was smoke always pouring out of this temple because of all of the sacrifices that was, that was taking place there. And inside the uh, temple of Zeus was a really large altar. And thus, because of that altar... Christians and others said that this is where Satan has his throne. All of the uh, places we would come around and gather and worship at this throne of Satan. So with that background of what Pergamum was, let us now go to our scripture, which is in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write These are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful, faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have heard those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. He has some pretty harsh words there, isn't there? Talk about the, the double-edged sword coming out of Christ's mouth and, 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 and killing and, and devouring uh, all of the negativity that, that is associated with what was happening in, uh, in, in Pergamum. And the people who were being killed, the witnesses that were trying to proclaim the gospel and, and, and put to death. All of these things were happening, 
And, and John wanted to let them know that that just wasn't it, that God and Jesus was in the midst, in the process of being there with all of this persecution and, and trouble happening within the city. So as we mentioned before, there, there's a pattern that, that goes forth in these letters. First, there's a talks about who Jesus is, then it gives the rebuke and then the con, con, uh, commendation, and then followed by the, this, this praise or, or, or this way that they can receive the gifts that God has given. You know, remember in Ephesus, we talked about how it talked about Jesus holding the seven stars in his his right hand and the seven stars being the church, uh, the leaders of those churches that they were writing to. Uh, to Smyrna, they talked about how Jesus was the first and the last, the promise of that, that new life that they can receive if they stayed faithful to, to Jesus. This one gives us an a interesting picture of Christ by saying he is the one with the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. One of the commentaries that I, that I looked at talked about it wasn't because Christ didn't have enough hands to hold the sword, that there was an important reason why that imagery was there for people to see. And that imagery was there to remind people of the importance of the Word of God. Not only the Word of God that was spoken by Jesus, but the word of God that we hold true as a part of our canon and what we, what we hold on to for our belief and for our edification and for our training and learning as followers of Jesus Christ. It was important for the church at Pergamum to understand that there were a lot of things pulling them aside, but what they needed to make sure that they were uh, and tune with was hearing the word of God. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 verse 12 said it this way about God's words being a double-edged sword. The writer writes, for the word of God is alive and active. So that sword says that God's word is always active in our lives. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So this, this two-edged sword coming from Christ's mouth reminds us that God's word is active and alive even today. I had a conversation with Dean Gilkinson uh, before the 8.30 service. We were kind of talking about uh, this, this message and was talking about how sometimes we, we take a look at a Scripture and we may read through it once or twice in our lives and then we put it down saying, well, I've read through all of that, so I don't need to look at it again. I understand, and I hear to over and over again, maybe the story of the Good Samaritan. I hear about what happens in the book of Acts. I even kind of hear a little bit about what happens in, in the first five books of the Bible. But, you know, I don't really need to get in-depth with it again because I basically know everything. But with God's Word being active and alive, 
we must continue to engage in Scripture because I can tell you for myself, there are times where I may read a story over for the seventh, eighth, or twentieth time, but there'll be something that sticks out to me to remind me of the way that God loves me and the way that God cares for me or a way that God is challenging me, poking me with that two-edged sword to saying, you know, your life needs to change because you're not living up to what my standard is for you. And I'm able to use that to help grow in God's word. It's a dividing thing. It helps us to see how our lives is and how we should live our lives. Not so that God can judge us, but so that we can be a faithful witness to God's love and grace in our lives for others to see. So Jesus continues to guide us and to lead us and and to push us forward so that we may see his word alive in our hearts and our minds. Then we get to the juicy stuff. This the rebukes that that uh, John had. Jesus has John write for the church, and the very first one points back to stuff that happened all the way in the book of Numbers, where he talks about how the church has held on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak. Now that story happened in Numbers, where Balak was. Uh, the Moab king, and he was really upset with the Israelites and wanted to wipe them out. And so he called on this guy by the name of Balaam to come and then put some kind of rebuke or curse over the Israelites. And as Balaam is coming, he's riding this donkey, and this donkey sees this angel that is hidden from Balaam's eyes. And three separate times, the donkey tries to avoid this this angel, and Balaam gets off and just starts wailing on this poor donkey. And God gave that donkey language to warn him and say, look, I'm saving your life. There is an angel here that's trying to kill you because God does not want you to go and witness to Balak about the Israelites. So Balaam turned and listened to God, and God said, you may go, but you must say what I tell you to say. And Balaam went and and prophesied for Israel instead of against them, but that's not the end of the story. Balaam then leaves the the area of Balak, and he goes and settles with the Midianites. And the Midianites, they have a problem with the Israelites, and Balaam tells them, this is how you need to treat the Israelites or how to help them lose their way. Encourage them. Encourage them to be immoral and encourage them to be promiscuous. Encourage them to to turn from their ways that they see who God is and then go their own separate ways. And if we look at judges and we look at the kings and we look at the prophets, we can see that that type of stuff happened. Where the Israelites started to look upon themselves as in control of of, of their destiny instead of looking towards God. And my friends, sometimes we do that ourselves. We, We look at ourselves thinking that we can control our own destiny and we can do what we feel is right. 
and we fail to listen to what God is calling us to do. But it wasn't just the prophet of Balaam that, that was tripping them up. We have, again, the return of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were mentioned in Ephesus, but they're back again here in Pergamum. And they are, are banging that drum also, just telling them that it's okay to conform with the world around us because, you know, if we really want to impact, we have to be exactly like the world uh, so that they can hear what we are trying to say. But actually, when we know, when we try to conform with the world around us, we, we start to miss the point. And our message becomes less and less attractive or less and less pointed because it's being dulled by the world around us. And I can see that happening with three different temples, really strong and active, saying, well, you know, we could just follow along and, and, and do some of the, the traditions that they're doing, but as long as we say that we're still Christians, then we have a witness. But that's not true. See, Romans chapter 12 reminds us that we aren't to conform to the world, but we are to be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. But then we come to the blessings, where, where John says, Jesus tells them, this is how you can continue. If you continue and if you can live in the life that we have called you to live, then you will receive the hidden manna. Now, manna, if you're familiar with Scripture, talks about the, the bread that was dropped down or that was on the ground for the Israelites as they were, it, that, as, as they were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. And they would pick it up and they would have enough left over for the day. And each day, God would provide this manna for them day after day after day as they traveled. It was such a significant thing that they took some of that manna and they placed it in a container and they put it inside the Ark of the Covenant that held uh, the Ten Commandments. But in around 6 BC, when the temple was destroyed, it's said that Jeremiah went into the temple and took out that hidden manna and went and took it to Mount Sinai and placed it in an uh, in a area of the mountain where people couldn't find it. And the, Jew, the Jews believe that the Messiah will come back to the mountain and bring out that hidden manna so that they may enjoy the Messianic feast. For us Christians, we have a tendency to look at it a little differently. When we look at the hidden manna, we see it represented here at the table where we come to every first Sunday of the month to partake in Christ's body, to, to share in that meal where, where Christ has given himself for us. But also we look at it through the lens of what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 3, that that hidden manna is hidden inside of us because Christ lives within us. Us, our life is hidden in Christ with God. That Christ comes and, and, and constrengthens us and, and builds us so that that life hidden within us connects us with the God who loves us and cares for us. But then with all of that, Christ gives us this white 
stone with our name on it. And to me, this is one of the most beautiful things that, that Jesus tells the church at Pergamum, is that this gift is a gift that they can cherish. See, back in those days, this white marble or this white stone was a sign of somebody being released, or it's a sign of somebody who was considered not guilty. If somebody went to trial and they were uh, found not guilty, they would receive this white stone. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite ways that they talked about this was for uh, gladiators who would fight in a, a, a tournament. And if a gladiator was lucky enough to retire, which means that they weren't killed as they were fighting, but they reached the age where they could say, I'm done, they would receive this white stone saying that you don't have to fight anymore, that, that you are set free from that life. And with Jesus handing the church these white stones, it's saying, you know, you don't have to fight anymore because I did all the fighting for you. When I hung on the cross and I died for your sins, that meant that you don't have to do that anymore, that your life is set free because of the love that I have given for you. So what does this mean for us? Well, when we take a look at the church at Pergamum and, and we see how do we look at our lives, we have a question that we need to ask. Is that will we take our time to search for relevancy and truth or will we live that that relevancy and truth is found in the love and grace of Jesus Christ? We have a world that tells us that we must continue to be searching. And we need to search. I, I, I'm very much into we need to know what God is calling us to do, and we need to see how God is calling us to move forward in our lives. But when we spend our time focusing more on the, 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 the psychology or the philosophies of the world and we totally ignore what Christ has called us to do, then we miss the point. One of my favorite uh, musicians uh, in the 80s and the 90s was Rich Mullins, and he wrote this song called The Maker of Noses. And in this song, he had these words in the chorus. He writes, they said, boy, just follow your heart, but my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose, but the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. And they said, boy, just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only misty notions. But here's the key that Rich was talking about, that the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one that I have chosen and I will follow him. See, all of these things that we have, our, our dreams, the, the stuff in our heart, you know, the way that we are to look around the world, those are all fine and good as long as we use them to honor and follow the one who gave us those gifts, who created us to be ones to question and to answer and to, to live a life for 
Christ. Jesus talks about this in his Gospels as he's confronted by, by the Jewish leaders of the times talking about what is the truth. And in John 8, verses 31 through 32, he says, If you abide in my word, or if we use the imagery from today's text, from that, double, that double-edged sword, if we abide by that, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My friends, as followers of the living Christ, we are set apart. We are set apart and we are given a new name and we are given the opportunity to live a life with Christ. Not to have Christ here on the side that we go to when we have difficulties or troubles or, or when we want to give him a pat on the head because things are going just right for us, but we are called to live a life with Christ knowing that Christ is in us and and guides us and leads us and moves us so that we can then go out into the world and make a difference because Christ has made a difference in us. My hope and my prayer is that as we continue to go through these churches and we look and see how our lives may line up to some of the struggles and, and the challenges that they may have dealt with, that we can see that a with Christ life is worth more than a life that's trying to see which direction that we want to go in because it feels good at the time, but that we enjoy and live a life full of the promises that God has given each and every one of us. Let us pray. Oh God, you have gifted us with the opportunity to reach out. You have given us with an opportunity to to look towards you, to see how your word guides us and leads us and, and shapes us. You have gifted us an opportunity to to hold on to the promise that you have given us, that you have called us not guilty, and that you have given us a name that we hold dear and true because of your love for us. So God, help us. Help us and and lead us so that we may be faithful disciples of yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.